0: This was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets.
1: So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work.
0: I feel like we got top, top,
1: top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt.
0: $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value, things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder Score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey, Go to valuebuilder.com. All right, next up is Anthony Lacavera. He sold Wind Mobile for $1.3 billion. That's with a B if you're counting at home. He's had 12 businesses, six of which he has exited. So he is an amazing uh, entrepreneur and someone we can learn a lot from. I asked him specifically about when to bring in a CEO, which he's done in most of his companies. He's got some interesting theories around that, which you're going to hear He talks about why paying your investors off a little too early might be a mistake, so be on the lookout for that point. How to raise capital, he raised $700 million for WinMobile. He talks about the downside of accepting venture capital, some of the secrets about raising venture capital money, um, the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make when they look to a VC in a round of funding, uh, when to sign a non-compete, he's got some interesting theories around that. Uh, The reason most owners get sucked into an earnout and the single most important section of a share purchase agreement that you absolutely must scrutinize before signing. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Anthony Lacavera. Anthony Lacavera, welcome to Built to Sell Radio.
1: Thank you for having me on. So, Andy,
0: you're like a rock star in Canada. I'm from Canada, so everybody
1: know, knows who the hell you are.
0: But outside of Canada, maybe, maybe, maybe people will know the name. But, I mean, um, you know, so many businesses, six exits, uh, one, for, one for a billion three. So, you know your way around this topic. I'm so grateful for you spending a few minutes with me on the phone.
1: Hey, John. It's my pleasure. Yeah, certainly. uh, It's been uh, an interesting run over the last 20 years.
0: Yeah. So where does it start for you? Where does this entrepreneurial journey start?
1: Yeah. So back uh, when I graduated from engineering school uh, at the University of Toronto in Canada, uh, I started in the telecom business pretty much just as I graduated. And I was initially selling uh, calling cards Uh, back in the day. You may remember back in the day, prepaid calling cards and before the days of voice over IP and, and those types of applications, you had to still pay 30, 40, 50 cents a minute to call between cities in America or wherever. So I, I started there. And then from there, I actually uh, diversified into a number of other telecommunications uh, type uh, services and businesses and um, and ultimately got into the wireless business in 2008. And that's what led me to my biggest exit that you mentioned a moment ago at a billion three. But
0: yeah, uh, but you a start... number of
1: exits and had a failure too along the way.
0: Yeah. I'd love to know what was the first business um, that you had?
1: Yeah, it was, in the, it was um, selling to hotels and hospitals, early uh, internet infrastructure and initially calling cards. And then I started rolling out internet. Um, remember back in the day when, you know, I'm talking now 15 years ago, you go to a hotel and it's... Uh, um, High-speed uh, wireless before Wi-Fi even, so it was you know Ethernet, and then transitioned it to some Wi-Fi. But it was in that business. Um, I was selling phone systems to hotels um, as a reseller for the big manufacturers. Uh, the calling cards. We had our own uh, platform and, and solution from that, and I was sort of buying capacity in bulk from Verizon and those types of folks, and and reselling it. um, into uh, into the hotel and hospital market. Um that whole business um I uh, I I started in 1998 and I I sold it actually just a couple of years ago. Uh, I'll, I'll coming up on 2 years ago in 2016. Interesting.
0: Uh, Interesting. Yeah. And 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 what was that exit like? What what
1: uh who yeah, was the so buyer? I got, I got you know, I, you know, it's uh, funny the business over the years um it it was <laughs> it was one of those businesses where it, it moved initially from calling cards, and of course, then when it, when voice over IP came in and, and and long distance rates went to zero, essentially, you know, um, uh, you know that business had to transition. So then it got into hotels and hospitals and 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 and, and phone systems for uh, for uh, h- hotels and so on. So it transitioned over the years. Over the years, it was a really good cash flow generator for me, um, and and um, but I could see the writing on the wall by the time we got to 2016. Really, 2015. I could see that that business just wasn't up for another transition. It, it was sort of at a place where the team there um, and and uh, you know they're all like family at that point. They'd been working with me for for uh, for the better part of uh, 15, 16 years at that point. They're like family, but they also were just sort of not really um, suited to go to the next level uh, in that business and and uh, And look at a further diversification or transition, so I, I elected to to sell it at that point. It was sort of flatlined, and it ended up being a sale for eight million dollars, um, you know, which over the previous fifteen years, the business was a great cash flow generator for me and helped me to get into it. see that I was never going to grow it beyond that size, and the team that you know, and because I valued the team so much, I was more concerned about the team. Uh, versus you know parachuting in some new talent to sort of reinvigorate the business that would have been so disruptive uh I didn't want to do that to the folks there so I, I sold it to a uh, a competitor in the marketplace uh that I know you know is going to continue to to operate at sort of status quo
0: got it and and so what were the economics on the so the 8 million uh what was the you know revenue EBITDA of the business when when you sold
1: yeah, revenue was around eight nine million. Uh, EBITDA was around a million five. Got it. Um, and at, at its peak, it was about a twenty five million dollar business with around four million in EBITDA. Um, pretty low capex business, so you know most of that EBITDA fell to the, the pre tax line. And, um, and and sort of, I was the CEO of it from nineteen ninety eight to call it two thousand and two. The last thirteen years that I owned it. Um, I had, uh, there was president in there, again, really long tenure folks that worked with me for a long time and folks that I considered family. So I wasn't about to, to, you know, sell it to a big carrier and have them gut it, you know what I mean? And just integrate it with their operations.
0: How do you think about the role of owner of a business versus the CEO of a business? Are those two separate in your mind? If so, how, how do you separate
1: them in your mind? Look, I think it's critically important that owners uh, put a different hat on if they're also the CEO. Um, I I just, I think that if you conflate those things, um, there are a whole lot of ways that that can really inhibit your growth. There are a whole lot of ways that that can be destructive to the culture of the business. Um, you know, in the end of the day, CEO reports to the board who reports to the owners. Um, I think it's really important to have that discipline in almost in any size of business, obviously in a startup, when you get your first to your first million in sales um, you're just getting organized it's early days you know it's hard to have those you know really good governance in, in place but i think it's really a good and healthy thing to have in place as quickly as possible and ensure that you have the discipline around okay what's good for the operations in this business today let's plan budgets and those budgets aren't you know as an example those budgets aren't created considering the uh, lifestyle requirements uh, of, of the owner, uh, you know, and what dividends are needed to, to, to fund the lifestyle of the owner. It, it's, it's of course a different question. Once you put your owner hat on and say, you know what? I know that I'm going to restrict the growth of the business. If I take that much cash out of it, as an example, to fund my, I don't know, my lake house, uh, purchase or whatever, but, um, but I'm making that trade consciously. If you don't make that trade consciously, I think you're doing yourself a real disservice in terms of your value.
0: So how do you know when, as a company, you're ready, as the owner, when you're ready to bring in a CEO?
1: It's a very difficult question uh, because I think a lot of it surrounds where are you trying to take the business. And it also is a personality discussion. I've met a lot of founders that really aren't suited to do anything other than also be the CEO. Um, and what, what, do, I mean by what are that they that like? They're so, I mean, they're so tied to the business. They live it and they breathe it. Um, they are really not folks that are good at letting go and delegating. You see that type of profile in people. And I find in a business that's relatively uh, a small business that isn't, isn't, Something that the owner wants to scale to a significant size, then you have to sort of wonder what the value of a CEO coming in would really be. You know, if you're not planning on making this thing a big thing, and you're not planning on financing it and bringing in a lot of capital, then maybe a CEO isn't the right answer. It just adds a lot of cost, and you're really not trying to take the business anywhere as a founder. So I, I start with the question of like, what are you trying to achieve as a founder slash owner? Uh, and then you can get to the answer of should I bring a CEO in or not? Got
0: it. So that sounds like a great uh, a great business that that you ran for for many years. You, I mean, did you treat it like a piggy bank? Were you bring? Did, did you take money out? Uh, my, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. 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 That's a great question. I think in my early days, uh, I when it first got turned profitable, I was probably too focused on buying out. Buying out the investors, um, and I probably could have deployed capital in my, you know, my now twenty years experience hat, on, I would have, <laughs> I would have made a different decision, and I would have deployed capital into growth instead of deploying capital into paying shareholders. Uh, so that was just a, a business uh, experience thing for me, in seeing, look. Uh, it, and, and in hindsight, maybe that business would have not peaked at $25 million. Maybe it would have peaked at 50 or $75 million in sales had I not swept cash out of it in the early years, and they call it year three to year seven from when I started. I took a lot of cash out and directed it to shareholders. And and I did, to your point about um, you know directing it elsewhere, I did direct it into other startups as well that was useful. And that, that's what I meant when I was saying that it was a good source of cash flow to help me diversify over the years. I did start up other businesses with those cash flows, but probably did that business a disservice in hindsight by directing so much of the profits to flow out of the company to shareholders uh, in the early going.
0: Why were you sending all the money to shareholders? I mean, was it because you you were a shareholder and you wanted the cash, or was it were they demanding to be paid back? Like, what what was what was driving you to they do were that?
1: Demanding. Yeah, they weren't demanding to be paid back. I had it in my mind that I wanted to give them their money back in a return, mm. and that I wanted in a, in, a tr- in exchange for that total autonomy. So I was trading, you know, re- return to them for con- just simple control for me. The, and you, and I, yeah.
0: Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead.
1: No problem. No problem. Yeah, it's just that. Yeah, just I just in, that, in those days. I was so focused on having control. Uh, that I ended up being a little bit short-sighted about capital efficiency, you know, and and deploying capital in a.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay, that's helpful for sure. Um, let's talk about you had you've had six companies, um, you've six exits. Uh, have you had investors in all six?
1: Yes, I've had disparate investors in a number of them. I've, I've started a total of twelve companies as a co-founder. I've been a co-founder of six, where I was a passive co-founder. Uh, and though a lot of those are still several of those are still going concerns. But the six that I uh, Of those, there were uh, disparate investor groups uh, across really all of them, actually, when I think about it, and um, and really learned a ton about you know how different investors, different types of investors, high net worth individuals versus institutions versus family offices versus uh, venture capital, how they all sort of think differently about business planning and capital allocation and uh, and everything in between uh, it, it, in terms of operations and scaling and and where things should go in and priorities. I mean, really a lot of uh, different thinking. So yeah, I've had some exposures, a short answer, so some exposure really across the spectrum. I mean, in wind, the mobile, which I started as a wireless carrier, I started in 2008, that, that The startup capital for that business was like $700 million, and, and I put in some some seed capital to organize the, the business, but it didn't really get going until I raised the $700 million to get it rolling. Uh, that was obviously a totally different type of investor group than a group of VCs that I had in the last business I started in 2014, which was a an unexpected pivot to an early sale in 2015. Uh, that was called Civic. Now called Civic Connect, it was called Global Live XMG when I started it. But yeah, so I've kind of seen a short answer across the across the board, kind of different exposure to different types of investors.
0: I want to ask about raising capital, but before I do that, though, I mean, I find it unique, uh, actually, to talk to a founder that's directly been involved in 12 12- Businesses and all of them have had investors because a lot of founders, I think, maybe even the majority of founders, uh, you know, they start a business, they want to control everything, they don't bring in outside investors. So, what was it that made you want to have other investors in all of your businesses? Obviously, win being the exception, where clearly you you would require investors, but in others, I'm, yeah. I'm assuming you you probably could have self funded.
1: Yeah, I could have self funded the last one for sure, and, and anticipated exit in about eighteen months. That one, I clearly had the resources just to do on my own. I decided to bring in venture capital for some specific growth reasons uh, that I can talk about. But back in the early days of my career, I didn't have any money. So I I wasn't really able to do anything without raising some form of capital. And that business that I first started up selling calling cards, ultimately got into hotel, internet, connectivity, and so on that I was describing uh, that business uh called canopco was the name of it uh c a n o p c o canopco that business was really uh something that I initially started it with a small business loan from the Royal Bank of Canada which was, had a small business loan program not not dissimilar to the small business loan programs that happen across america across the u k and so on um, that that was how I got it initially off the ground, but then as I got going. I realized that in order to make the business, uh, successful, I needed more capital. Uh, there were competitors starting to come in the space. It was starting to really heat up in terms of internet for hotels and phone systems for hotels, modern phone systems for hotels. It was starting to heat up. So I, I, I really recognized that I need to actually get into this in a bigger way faster and gain market share faster. And that's what drove me to, uh, to to raise capital for it it was sort of out of necessity feeling like we were going to actually not be able to capture all the market share that um that i was trying to capture if i didn't do it
0: got it and so talk let's talk about raising capital because clearly you've raised a lot of it in your career um you know if you were coaching a, a young entrepreneur through their first raise of money and and they're just confused by They've heard of friends and family rounds and Series A and venture capital and, 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 and family offices. And there, it's just a litany of, of acronyms and names that they don't necessarily understand. What sort of counsel, coach, would you give them?
1: Yeah, I think it starts with identifying what you're really trying to achieve with the business, because committing yourself to venture capital takes you down a certain road. There's a certain runway of, for investment that that venture capitalist is going to have Often, most often, the VC is managing money for other folks, and they're reporting to other folks uh, that they ha- they have to that they are accountable to, and they have to make decisions that reflect the mandate that those folks investing in them gave them. So you you really are dealing with someone generally who's pretty constrained in some respects about what they can uh, do and not do versus a single high net worth individual that really can go for a ride with any business plan if they get excited about it and they like you as a founder, like you as a founder CEO, they can skip behind almost anything. And then I put sort of family office money in between there where there is some real governance and discipline and focus of the type of investment they're trying to make. And you can't pivot the business plan from something totally different and easily get that by them. Uh, So there's a, there's a spectrum there of, considerations for a founder starting with how much capital do you really think you're going to need because individuals will often tap out at a certain amount. So having just individuals, high net worth individuals is risky in that you may have a competitor emerge that's got some venture capital backing and can really raise a lot of capital quickly if they prove them, when they prove the model out. So you, you know, you trade though constraints in the, in that, when you're in the early going, you have a high net worth individuals. You know, if there's 10 of them and they've invested you know, a seed financing in your business, you can have a meeting with all 10 of them all at once and say, you know, here's what I'm thinking, here's what we need to change. And you can quickly pivot the business plan completely over the, f- the course of a phone conversation or a, or a lunch or something. You can change the business plan significantly. Much harder to do if you've got venture capital in the business uh, or family offices or other institutional investors in the business that are expecting uh, a, a, a much more rigorous governance process and discussion and debate about what is good and what's not good and what's the the market experience so far telling us we need to do and these types of things are important for them because again as I said earlier they said they're, they're reporting to other folks that they have to explain their decisions to so um, uh, I think that there's a, a whole a host of considerations as a founder that you should think about. What you're really trying to achieve? Are you are you trying to make this a global business? Then unlikely to be you're going to be able to do it with just venture investors. You need venture capital uh, or banks. In if it's if it's more of a uh, a financeable business, manufacturing or, or other types of, uh, of of businesses that can have a combination of equity and debt because they're, they're they cash flow positive sooner. Uh, you, you go that you go that route if you want to just build a business in your local market that you just own 100% of or you own nearly 100% of and you bring in a couple of high net worth individuals just to get it off the ground and you show them a good return, that's a great model too. So it, it always comes back, John, to what does the founder want to do with this business? And some businesses aren't meant really to be global businesses. Other businesses really should be. And, and some businesses can't survive unless they scale. Other businesses can survive long-term at a certain, this business that I started that I just sold last year for $8 million, 15 years later, 16, 17 years after I started it. Um, it, it that business just is, is what it was. It was good the way it was. It was a good generator of cash the way it was. It, 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 it you know, Could I have repackaged it and gone and raised a bunch of growth capital for it? You know, probably but it would have been something totally different in terms of a business plan and would have put certain requirements on me as a CEO and, and changed uh, the dynamic considerably. And, and so in the end, I decided that it wasn't right for that business. I didn't want to do that with that business. And so we didn't, you know, we didn't do it. And we stuck with just that uh, you know, early venture debt investment that we got in and the bank find the small business loan we got in. And ultimately, I bought all those venture debt investors out And and obviously, I paid the bank back, and sort of owned the asset free and clear from there for the you know the past decade plus uh, years.
0: Let's talk about venture capital for a second, uh, because you've already raised one of the downsides of 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 taking on a VC, because you know they're going to their bar for. Corporate governance and professionalism is going to be much higher than maybe a friend or a family member. Uh, what are some of the other downsides of of selling a slice of your company to a VC?
1: I think that VCs look at uh, the successful ones, which you'd hopefully want to get into your company. Look at industries, and they're looking at trying to be attached to and fuel the growth of a category killer in a given industry, uh, disrupting an industry uh, and and really consolidating around that disruption is how the big name VCs have made their largest scores, you know, over the years and biggest returns. So they're all gunning for that. Uh, So I think a a significant potential drawback for a founder CEO is that they could get into it with a VC and the, the VC sees that founder CEO as a stepping stone to a consolidation with some other, Investment that they already have, or that they are thinking about having, or that their buddies down the road in another VC already have, um, you as a founder could be sort of, you know, tagged for elimination right at the outset uh, because you're going. They they have in their minds a big master plan of how whatever disruption that you're involved with and across whatever industry is happening all the different investments that all these different VCs have, I mean, they do collaborate. They do know one another. They do have a strategy to see a, a, a category killer emerge. So you think about social media, you know, you, you, Facebook clearly became the category killer. It owns it. And, and uh, the acquisitions of the companies like Instagram and WhatsApp, you know, those were all sort of necessary acquisitions to consolidate under one founder CEO, um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. So, it, That's a a potential downside for founders. If you envision yourself being attached to a business for 10, 20 years and see it as your life's work, then getting a VC in and selling them a slice, uh, it may set you up to not be that person. Uh, So anytime I've worked with VCs, I've just spent a ton of time getting to know the partners. It's not a franchise that you're dealing with. It's a partner. It's not, you know, Sequoia. It's, Paul or John or Steve from Sequoia. It's not, uh, it's not Andreessen Horowitz. It's the same. It's the individual, you know, partner that you're dealing with at that firm and, and getting to know that person and making sure that you're aligned on the long-term plan, not just for the business, but for yourself, making sure you're aligned and saying, look, if I want, I'm, I only want you guys in this company. If I'm going to be the person, you know, maybe that's your path. If you see yourself as being a great startup CEO, but you want to see a, uh, a consolidator CEO, an M&A, uh, a financial engineering, uh, or capital markets-friendly CEO come in there, um, and that you don't think that's your skill set, you know, then good for you. And 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 I just want I would just want to make sure you set all that stuff up front. Like like I was saying earlier, you, you make a big trade when you think these venture capital versus high net worth individuals and family offices, you make a big trade on flexibility ability to quickly change paths and ability to quickly adjust plans. You make a trade with, with these. But what you get as a positive with the VCs is really effectively unlimited capital. If your model is working, they will, they will and they are mandated too by their investors to lean in so hard that you just become the category killer.
0: What sorts of gotchas or, you know, tips and tricks can you tell us or or I guess potholes to avoid when you're when you're looking at a term sheet, whether it's from a family office or a VC? Um, what are some of the, the, the sneaky language, the legalese that they work into these agreements that can can come back to bite a founder?
1: Yeah, well, there's many. <laughs> um, there's many, uh, I think. I'd start with what is the uh, what is the mandate of the family office uh, what's, you know that or or the v c that's coming in are they a uh, a consolidation focused player are they an m and a focused player are they uh an acquisition focused like that's that's tuck in smaller players and make this you know what what's their mindset uh because you'll see a lot of that reflected in term sheets that surface from. So for example, if their expectation is that you're going to draw down more capital to make select acquisitions, then you'll see them put language in that that facilitates rights for them to follow on invest and and, uh, multipliers that allow them to take big pieces of follow on rounds at their discretion, um, restricts your ability to bring in other investors, because again, they didn't see that as a one and done. They saw it as we're going to Get this platform for consolidation of whatever vertical going, and we want to ensure then that we're the ones writing the big checks the whole way up because we want to get the maximum return.
0: So they could actually limit you from going to other VC firms or other investors.
1: Absolutely, interesting. Absolutely, the, the, I, I would look very hard for those types of restrictions. But there'd be a long list of of anything related to governance where they have certain veto rights. I would be. I'm always extremely focused on what are. I try to map out the easiest way to do this I found in my experience is just map out outcomes in your mind. You're, if you're a founder CEO and you've got a business off the ground, you can, you can do this. You, you know how to instinctively, whether you've ever articulated it to yourself or built it, but you can do it. You map out what the, the outcomes you see as probable or likely are uh, in various paths for your business. And then you start to think about what does the term they just put in the term sheet mean in all of those different circumstances. Now it can be painful. It can take a long time because if there's 20 different ways it goes that you come up with, you got to start, you got to apply that term from that term sheet to all those 20 scenarios and see what it does to you as a founder, see what constraints does it put on you and what opportunities does it put on you, by the way. It's not always negative, but but there will be an impact. And you, I've been the most successful when I've Seen some of those impacts and influences coming versus being surprised by them.
0: Tell me a story about a situation where you got caught out. There was a term that you hadn't thought through and it screwed you over in the
1: long term. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I would I'll go to a bank example. Actually, I borrowed um, uh, money in 2006 to make an acquisition onto an existing business that I had. And I agreed to terms in that bank uh, agreement that gave me the choice of either going into, of, of restricting the growth of the business or growing, going into default on the loan. And in the end I took the chance and went into default on the loan because I did not want to compromise the growth of the firm. And I ended up in a place where for about a year I was negotiating back and forth to, to bring, to rotate out the banks that I had in the syndicate that were really unhappy with my decision to, um, to prioritize the growth of the firm over uh, the specifics of their loan covenants. And, 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 it wasn't like I was in any kind of jeopardy of repaying their loan. It was very clear that they were getting paid, but they had created terms that made it to default, even though the company was paying all the interest and in principal owed to them. Um, they had certain vetoes over uses of cash. And uh, I think that's pretty common in bank agreements. Now I'm like acutely focused on it whenever I'm, doing any kind of agreement with a bank, big or small, I'm all about what, it doesn't matter that they don't have a board seat. It doesn't matter that they're not a shareholder. They have incredible ability to influence your business. If they've got an ability to block investments, an ability to sweep cash and an ability to, they can force your hand in behavior. And that can really compromise you achieving your plans. It might be great for them because they get their money back faster or whatever, but it's worth, it's, it's really bad for you long-term. So you got to be, that's happened to me. That happened to me in 2006. And you know, I I could give you other examples. I, I had a, um, when I bought, when I started wind, the wireless carrier, um, I neglected to put a term in that allowed me to have a first right to buy out that initial investor group. If they wanted to sell, I didn't have a first right of refusal. And I say to any founders, that's like a table stakes term. And I just missed it. And what ended up happening is the my investor group sold their position to another investor group. And I didn't have a first right, uh, to, 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 to make an offer myself. And that led me to getting an investor group that I didn't sign up to start the business with. In the end, it turned out to be a great outcome. It was a great exit, but that was a painful process for me. And I would have actually I think, taking the business not to a billion three exit. I think I could have taken it to two, three, or four billion, maybe more if I had not had this investor group um, uh, imposed on me that I didn't sign up with, but I didn't have a first right to buy the initial group out. So definitely it's hit me many times, John. I can go through in each deal, like each business I've started, I've... Had an experience where I just missed something, and and so I'm I'm super careful now, of course.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go back to the, the the original example in 2006 with the bank covenant. What was the specific covenant that you were in breach of?
1: Yeah, it was a ratio uh, of free cash flow uh, to um, yeah, it was a ratio of a free cash flow um, uh, ratio versus projection, and projection was. Diced and sliced many different ways, as you know, that their analysts did and my team did, and we finally agreed on a projection. Um, And it didn't properly incorporate seasonality (laughs) into that cash flow projection. And so, even though things were going great, there was the normal seasonal dip, and I had the choice to either curtail marketing significantly so that I maintained that free cash flow ratio, or I could just go into into breach of the covenant and run the risk of getting a big default process with them. Um, and I just, after having a couple of, not a couple, probably a dozen conversations with them saying, this is insane. You guys can see the history of the business that you, you know, that you loaned to, that you went to uh, that this has happened every single year. This is the way this business goes. And we had a seasonality factor in that cash flow, but the growth rate of the business, ironically, was what made the seasonal, created a bigger impact on the seasonal dip because it was growing so quick in the growth season that it made the the, the the seasonality dip look more severe. And I just thought it was crazy that we would then, okay, well, how don't we just stop growing the business so that we can make sure we're on side with this covenant? Um, so I elected to just proceed. And uh, in the end, you know, I ended up paying fees to the bank to waive these, these covenant breaches and in the end after a whole lot of grandstanding and and drama it ended up being effectively a non-event um but you know what it did do and what i'd say to all founder ceos is that it can consume a huge amount of your time it consumed half maybe 70 75 percent of my time for the period of you know three six months you know wading through all this stuff and and um that's not productive for you know for value creation in your business, of course, at all, when you have a founder distracted that much. So yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, that's what happened on that one.
0: Let's go back to the, the wind mobile example where you, yeah. you failed to negotiate for a first row refusal. Um, and it, it, I mean, you're raising seven, 700, $700 million. Yeah. It's not like, it's not like a small <laughs> yeah. deal you'd have, yeah. you'd have the, the, the $900 an hour, a team from a big, you know top four account or legal firm like sure what, do what's the lesson there in working with your lawyer uh for a founder i mean in a way wouldn't you i would have thought the lawyer would have protected you but it, clearly they didn't in this case
1: well i think the lawyers um it's sort of to your point right and it, it, when you talk about a raise of that size there's a big machine around it and it wasn't just one lawyer i mean there's a team of lawyers Talking about regulatory considerations yeah, that surrounding the, the wireless licenses that we we're bidding on in an auction. There's auction specialists and legal experts surrounding that. I mean, it just becomes a big team. Probably 30 plus people, you know, involved between the team on my side and the team on the investor side uh, negotiating that whole thing. In the end, when I look back at it, I wanted certain things in the agreement. I wanted certain, uh, protections and controls for my business, um, that caused me to overlook what I would normally consider to be table stakes things. For example, the first right, um, I let go of something that in my, that, that, and my, and my, and my logic at the time, I remember it was it was, it was flawed logic. I'm like, well, it's, it's such a, a large investment that, they're not doing it for to be in it for three or four or five years. They're doing it to be in it for 10 to 20 years. And the nature of the investor was, is they were an operator in the wireless business. They owned and operated a number of wireless businesses around the world. And they had a track record of being in the business for, you know, since the inception of the wireless industry in the eighties. So it's just like, I didn't think they would ever be somebody that that they wouldn't be an entity that would sell in, in the early going of the business. Um, and that, was a, and that was flawed logic on my part because, of course, uh, anyone that has an opportunity to exit an investment at an opportune moment, you, you know, could, could capitalize on it. And so I, I erroneously thought that they would be looking at the investment opportunity the same way that I was. And then they would see, they were looking at the market opportunity to partner with me and build a wireless carrier in Canada they saw that as a good long-term opportunity for themselves as well. And that's why they made the investment when in fact it was an opportunistic investment for them. And it was an opportunistic exit when they took the exit. Right. Um, So I was, I don't know if I've used the word naive, but I, uh, I I erroneously thought that they were looking at it the same way uh, as, as I was. And so then I said, okay, well then I'm going to, hold on to these other terms that are really important to me in terms of protections for my existing businesses and controls and, and, and governance controls and so on that I want. I'm going to hold on tight to those because, yeah, that's they want, they want the flexibility to sell. They're not going to do it anyway, so I don't, I don't need to worry about it. Well, hey, I was completely wrong and they did do it.
0: Hmm. You know, I think a lot of people listening might be sitting there saying, wow, this this guy, Anthony." operates in another stratosphere it's all financiers and lawyers and 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 I'm here making I'm making widgets and and um on some level uh what he does doesn't sound that interesting cuz it sounds like a lot of time spent with lawyers and bankers as opposed to serving customers working on products and and making widgets do you ever in your own mind struggle with that that you'd rather have a lifestyle business where you're actually meeting customers face to face and actually making the product i mean do you ever feel that yearning for that a different way of of entrepreneurship
1: okay, absolutely and and i only had one exit you know a billion three the others were smaller exits um you know uh, one eight million dollars one six million dollars one twenty nine million dollars i mean those companies i was in, that i was involved with i was to your point, I was right on the front line meeting customers, taking customers out for you know for a football game or the, the whatever that the, whatever sporting event and hanging out with them and getting to know them personally, getting to know their families and 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 the they were all business to business businesses. so I was uh, a big part of my everyday life was meeting. Uh, corporate accounts and, and spending time cultivating those accounts and getting you know bigger market share. We are a telecom provider, so it, what would typically happen is AT&T or Verizon or uh, at the time it was still Bell South and SBC and Pac Bell. A lot of folks would remember all those names. Uh, those were th- those that would be the companies that would have the lion's share of the business, and then there was a bunch of folks my size chipping away at it trying to offer new services, alternative services, better customer care, customer service, better pricing into the customer. And so you did you a know, typical corporate account, you know, business customer account. I might be 5 or 10% of their total telecom spend. And Bell Atlantic or, or Verizon, you know, what w- was the successor company to Bell Atlantic, that w- they would be 90%. And I'm, you know, it, it would be a tiny irrelevant account to Verizon. And it would be a huge account for me. at at having only five or 10% share. So I would, my my big value add was, you're going to get my personal attention, Mr. Customer, because you matter a whole hell of a lot to me. And, and, you know, let me show you Verizon's income statement last quarter. You don't matter to them at all. Uh, That was a powerful sales pitch. And so when I got into the, the wireless business and was the founder CEO of that, and it scaled to quickly to 1500 people very quickly within the first 18 months. And and it, it's a totally different experience as being a founder of a business like that. Like you don't, you don't even know anyone and your you know, your executive team really that well, let alone your customers. You know what I mean? Which do you enjoy so, better? I, I got to tell you, I'm cut out to be the guy on the front line with customers, customers. That's just my, that's just my personality. That's just my nature. You, you, I, 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 there are better folks than me to be the CEO of a big wireless company. Um, That's just not, not, you know, so even I brought a lot of my own way of doing things to that business. I mean, I went into the stores, I was selling phones in the stores. I was meeting with customers regularly. I was taking customer service calls directly from, from customers, you know, so I I did a lot of stuff tend to do um, or none of them do, but uh, it was important to me to not let go of what made me successful in, in the smaller businesses that I'd started. Uh, so, uh, but did it really add value to the business? Hey, I, I don't know. I, I can't, I don't have a clear answer for you. And other than that, I made, I felt like I was making the same kinds of contributions that I was making to those other businesses where I was really, you know, interacting with customers. And that was part of our value proposition was me interacting with customers. I think it resonated, but you know, it, it, the book would be out. on taking my approach from the small to the large.
0: Interesting. I want to think about, I mean, imagine your. um, you're talking to a YPO forum mate, and they've got a business that's going to sell in that 6 to 8 to $29 million range. That's the size of business they're, they're about to exit. What advice would you give them on the negotiation? So not about how do you build it. They've already built it. They're at the table. Uh, they're, they're ready to pull the trigger on their exit. What sorts of negotiating advice might you, might you impart on a, on a forum mate?
1: I think I would start with uh, what's on the other side of this for you. Are you trying to literally walk away and start fishing and golfing or whatever 24 seven? Are you, uh, what do you, what's What do you want on the other side of Are you trying to start another business?
0: Why would you start Um, there? Why does it matter? Because I think,
1: because I think that the negotiation gets driven a lot by the outcome you want to achieve. And if the outcome on the other side of it is you want to start another business, well, I'd say to the 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 the, YP, uh, the forum mate, then you better be pretty focused on what kind of non compete you've got to enter to sell this business. You know, you've got to be I, you've got to be pretty focused on that those constraints because if you're if you're selling the business, you're likely selling it to someone else who's in a similar business, and that other those those folks aren't going to like it if you start up again in what you know, which is what most founder CEOs do. I mean, as me as a telecom entrepreneur, I, the twelve businesses that I've founded or co-founded have all been in telecommunications because I, for me, it was always really important to have a very clear, very narrow non-compete. So uh, I, you know, in the exit I had in 2006, the one business uh, that I sold for $29 million, I kept it to a three year non-compete for me personally. And I probably gave up some economics and the negotiation and the exit value to be able to hold on to, I'm going to be right back at you guys in three years. Um, And I did actually, didn't found one, but I co-founded a similar business in 2009 that I'm still a, a, a shareholder of, major shareholder of. Um, I'm not the CEO of it, but I co-founded it. And um, I wouldn't have had the flexibility to do that if I let them enter, you know, me, me enter into a five or seven plus year non-compete. Uh, so okay, so, example. And, yeah,
0: so yeah. forum for mate says, Anthony, you know, I just want mm-hmm. to go to the golf course. I don't, you know, yep. I'm done. Yeah. Now yep. what? What so advice? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I'd say, look, you've got to come to the table with a very, very clear succession plan for you. You, You're going to give up a lot of value if you come to the table and say, and and, and the folks buying it, when they go and do diligence, they find out that the place lives and breathes on your involvement in it. And you're in the workflow all over the place. Uh, Folks are going to be worried about. What happens when you hit the golf course? And even if you sign up for an earnout with a a transition uh, plan and and, and earnout on the value, and, and you're really incentivized to stay and do it, you're getting some significant amount of money off the table at the start, and that does change how people look at things. And you also, as a founder CEO, it goes from being yours to someone else's, and that's a huge psychological shift for most founders, even if you're incentivized in economics, you might say in two years, you might be saying, you know what, I'm, I'm loving this playing golf. I'm, I'm a scratch golfer. Now I'm going to give up some of those earn out economics. Cause I want to prioritize going to the driving range this morning at 10 AM, not, not hammering away at that customer contract, you know? So that's, I think what buyers will be really concerned about. If you, if you, I think it's important to be transparent and show up and say, look, this is, this is an exit for me. I'm, I want, to exit this in as expeditious and orderly as fashion as possible because I focused on my kids, my family, my lifestyle, whatever it is. Um, But you need to keep in mind that in order to to get maximum value, you must show up with a business that either runs really well with you just being a figurehead on it already, which. Is not really often the case in 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 most of these businesses that you, you come across, or you come to the table within a succession plan. And succession plans, you know, nepotism is always a risk in this area where you you've got your you know relatives or kids or, or other family who are in the business in some way. There's going to be a concern about transition for them as well and what role they have. If you just lay all this all out for the buyer and say. I want out completely and here's the plan. Here's here's the vice president of operations. His name is Joe. We'd love you to spend a lot of your time with Joe, not with me. Make sure you're comfortable that Joe's the right guy to be your president because he's integral. To, I hear my plan for you is we promote Joe. We got um, Sally here, who's the currently the vice president of finance. I think I'm doing a lot of finance stuff myself. She's going to be a great CFO. I think that you should spend a lot of time. So I would show up that way. If you really want to get maximum value, you now give the, you take a lot of concern off the buyer's plate. If you shown them how this business continues, no problem. If you just check out as soon as you walk away with a paycheck.
0: And do you have any tips and tricks for how to, how to, how to convincingly tell the buyer that Sally in finance is going to be a great CFO. I mean, there's one thing you saying and laying out the succession plan. Um, but there's another thing: the other side actually believing you. H- have you got any tips and tricks on how do you actually get them to go? Oh, okay, maybe maybe Sally would be a great CFO, and maybe Bob would be a great president.
1: Right. Yeah. So it starts with you've got to really believe that yourself, otherwise you're never going to you're never going to sell it correctly. Um, and you've got to recognize where your own limitations are, because even if you don't like the way Sally does something, she might know a ton more than you about what she's doing, and so. Take your personal bias out of it. There's lots of different ways to get most, most or in fact the lion vast majority of things in business. There are many ways to achieve it in in my experience. So she's doing it the way she's doing it and it's working. So you've got to start with, do you believe that she is actually a great, if you really do believe that, then you're going to be really happy for her to spend a whole ton of time with the buyer without you around. And that's the key. That's the acid test. You need to feel good about Bob and Joe and Sally and Claire and whoever else they've got us be spending a ton of time with the buyer without you around, without you overhanging, overseeing, without you guiding the conversation. They know the cues from you. You don't realize it, but you work for them. You you work with Sally for 10 years and she's been your VP of finance for 10 years. Just you changing your body language in a meeting will cause her to change her answer. You know, that's, and by sophisticated buyers see right through that. So you got to get to a place where you have your executive team in front of that buyer and you are just completely out of the picture. That's a, that's a true transition. That's a true succession plan that a buyer can get their head around. And the buyers are always going to be wary of just trying to parachute someone in, into that team as well. So if there is someone that the buyer would likely have as, as, as a, an operator for the business, you'd want to bring that person into the mix very quickly as well, because the buyer is also going to be worried about, well, are all these folks just going to go try to find other jobs? Cause they're not going to like uh, the, the president that we want to bring in. You know, we don't want to promote someone inside. We want to bring in our own. Okay. Well that creates a whole different set of risks for the buyer. Um, uh, so I, I would, as you can tell, I would, I, I would focus if you, if you want to hand someone the keys and, and walk away, then, you got to hand them, uh, uh, you know, a well-oiled machine to be able to walk away and still get full value. You know, I've seen it go the other way where um, I've had some investments in companies that sold way below peak value um, just because there was a partnership dynamic that wasn't working and folks wanted to sell or, or there wasn't a good succession plan. There wasn't a good transition plan for the buyer. But it wasn't, when those things aren't in place, John, you take a big hit in value. So you, you got to get those in place if you want to hand someone the keys.
0: Sounds like it. You know, I want to ask you the same question that we I asked you around raising capital. So you shared one of the things that that you've got to watch out for the you know the gotcha uh, in in the terms and conditions of any capital raising document would be veto rights. Same thing on the actual share purchase agreement. I mean, what are the things that 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 founders should be on the watch for? when they when they view either a letter of intent, an LOI, or even the, the final share purchase agreement that can come back to
1: bite them? Yeah, look, I think the term sheets, I think all of us uh, folks that have built businesses can get our way through pretty well. When you get into the share purchase agreement, you're going to have a lot of reps and warranties in that agreement. Normally, buyers are going to make you represent certain things being true within your company. You're going to have to warrant that certain things are the case. And if it's not the case for whatever way it ends up being not the case that you could have a refund, the buyer some amount or, or, or to remedy the, the the deficiency and, and, and spend your money to remedy the deficiency. And often in private businesses, there's a hold back or or a reserve for the buyer against those reps and warranties that you're making um, that, that, that allows them to, to pretty easily effectively lower the purchase price if, if things aren't sort of exactly as represented. So I would really spend a lot of time in the fine print of that sure pair purchase agreement and make sure that you are as a founder, owner, operator, extremely comfortable with all of the potential gotchas in those reps and warranties. And, and what you're saying that you know, a hundred percent to be the case uh, and, and that even if unanticipated events happen in the business, that it, that representation would still hold true. Otherwise you could find yourself in a place three months, the, the buyer comes back at you and says, yeah, you made these 10 representations and, you know, here's the problems that we have with four of them. And here's the data, uh, out of the business to tell us that these four things are not true. Um, so here's what that means to the purchase price. And that would take me to my second big theme, which is what is the remedies that the buyer has? I've seen it where the buyer could end up uh, on an earnout, for example, if you only get half your money up front, suddenly half of your money is exposed to a legal fight about what you were representing and warranting was true in that share purchase agreement. So I would get your lawyers that are helping you with the agreement as a founder or CEO, I would get them to take you through, look, here's all of the ways that this representation could be interpreted. The buyer's asking for this representation from you that ABCD is true in your business. Here's the ways that, that I've seen it as an experienced attorney. Here's how I've seen it not be true. And here's what I've seen the ramifications of that being. Um, and I don't think, I don't think that you should overlook that fine print, John. I think that you should spend a ton of time making sure that all that is airtight as airtight as is reasonably possible so that, um, you, you know, you 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 make sure. I would also go so far as to say, in a private business sale, in the call a ten million dollar exit range or five million dollar exit, I would go so far as to say that I would even give up five or ten percent of the value of the business that I'm targeting. Let's say I think it's worth ten million, and I got the buyer to ten million, but in order to get the ten million, I got to make all these representations and warranties about the status of the business that I'm not comfortable with. I would try to say to the buyer, look, you're, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with all these things. Why don't you give me $9 million or $9.5 million for this business as the purchase price. And, you know, these four things just got to come out because I can't, the typical argument that I've made in the past is, well, look, you could make a whole bunch of, Fuck out of here. You could make a whole bunch of, this, of bad decisions that would make that not true in six months. And so, And of course, the buyer will say, yeah, we're not, we're not buying this business to wreck it. So we would never do that. I'm like, okay, guys, if you'd never do it, then why do you need to represent me to represent that? It's always going to be true. Uh, You know, so I would have that debate with the buyer. I would negotiate those representations and warranties very very carefully.
0: And would your experience be that that companies are movable on reps and warranties cuz a lot of times but bu- you know buyers of businesses are 10, 20, 50 times the size of the target company. And I think a lot of times entrepreneurs founders are a little bit intimidated by, well they're never going to I mean this is the rep and warranty schedule that they've given us. Um, they're not going to move on any of these terms because they're you know they're going to walk if they have to. Do you do you feel like there's any movement on them? They can, you can get.
1: I think there's tons of flexibility on that, especially if you're prepared to negotiate on business terms, on economic terms. So I would, you, you, then you got to go through them and, and you try to eliminate ones that are totally, uh, an overreach. I mean, buyers, if a buyer's got good, good, good legal, then a good legal team, they're going to overreach on everything, you know, and, and try to get you in a place where, that $10 million purchase price might only be six by the time you're done, you know, and, and that's, uh, that's, you got to just remember that 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 legal team is trying to find ways to make the deal ultimately better for their client, which is the buyer, not, not you. So once you start from that place and you, and, and I would say, these things are always, always about trades, always about a negotiation. You've got to be prepared to put something back on the table. If you're asking for them to take out, a, a, a rep and warranty that's important to them. Um, you know, maybe you give up some economics, but I would also start with from the place of if you've got a good legal team, like what, what are the reasonable reps and warranties uh, for this type of transaction in this industry of this size of exit selling to this kind of buyer who's really strategic or otherwise, whatever the buyer is, what kind of reps and warranties are reasonable and, and, And and start there. And if the agreement is way off base on those, uh, I would would aggressively look to carve it back. And and you'll probably shake out whether it's a a buyer that's going to close or not, you know, uh, in that process. I mean, you you might quickly stop wasting 60, 90 days of your whole team's time to actually close the transaction if you find out that the buyer is going to take unreasonable positions in an important rep. Um, and that, then they, they say it's, you know, make or break, we're going to walk away when well, you say, well, you're just being unreasonable and, and you call their bluff on it. And if they do walk away, then they probably weren't going to close anyway. Um, or you were going to end up agreeing to a term that you can't meet and you're just effectively giving up purchase price anyway. <laughs> you know, you, you, I would give up, you know, in that example I used of a $10 million price, I'd say, how about I give you half a million. Now you take out these five reps. Uh, because you could make a whole bunch of decisions that make those reps not true, and I'm not going to have any control of it. Uh, why don't I give you half a million dollars now instead of having this term in the agreement where you can take a million dollars off the purchase price? I'll give you half a million now. Um, you know, I, I would I would start to use the economic levers against a ten million dollar exit to try to uh, to to do it that way. And then on the other side of it, you know, say, look, if the business overperforms, I want these other economic incentives. So. You know, perhaps I you find a way to make up that other half a million on an earnout with some other other upside incentives that you can get as a as a as a founder owner operator. And and if you really do believe your team is going to transition it well, in the example we've been discussing where you you you're, you're going to hand someone the keys and go to the golf course. In that example, if you really do think your team is going to be great succession, and the buyer buys into that, then hey, maybe your team we'll figure out how to do things maybe even a bit better than you were doing them. And if they do do that and there's upside, then maybe you a buyer that way and in exchange for the trade that you're making uh, by giving up some economics on the front end on these reps and warranties. But in the end of the day, these agreements are, in my experience, are all, everything is on the table for negotiation. And as a founder CEO, you should not just ever think that uh, any term is, is, is not something that you can discuss with the buyer.
0: Well said and great advice. You had a billion three exit, a a bunch of others. I mean, after the wind mobile exit, I know it was an exhausting process. I mean, did you, did you, did you indulge in a trophy? Did you buy yourself anything that, that was a, a a trophy of the achievement?
1: Yeah. So I'm i I'm a private pilot. I love to fly. Um, and I don't fly, uh, you know, big jets or anything like that, but I had a small plane, um, and what I did was I went and bought a new small plane, still a four seater, but it was one of these, uh, John is like a custom built airplane that I got to, you know, tweak every little bit of it, um, in, 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 in being a custom built airplane. So that was a really cool experience for me. And, um, and, uh, I love that little bird that I, that I had a part in building and made it exactly what I love. And from every last stitch of the interior to every, detail on the outside. It's, it's all sort of what I loved. So, um, yeah, that's what I did. And, uh, that was really fun experience for me as well as, uh, ending up with, a uh, you know, a, an airplane that I, I just love and love to fly.
0: Oh, that's cool. I I love it. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> a pon- pontoon, like a, a pontoon. Or... Oh, know
1: it's, it, oh, it's a, a fixed... Lance Air evolution. Oh, cool. So it was a, a bend, a bend Oregon based manufacturer called Lance Air. Um, boutique manufacturer, um, uh, now actually owned, um, I can't think if they sold the Cessna, they've sold to someone now, but anyway, at the time it was an independent company. Um, and, um, and, uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a, a, a low wing, uh, you know, retractable gear, pressurized four seater that, you know, is was a little, a little bullet in the sky.
0: Awesome. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us briefly about the book. Uh, why'd you write it? Where where can people get it? That kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. So the book has got a, it, it's titled How We Can Win. And it's it uh, talks a lot about Canada, actually, as, as my home country and, and why I love Canada and what makes Canada a great place to be. And what I've done is weave in there entrepreneurial stories uh, of great entrepreneurial success stories um, that are ranging from founders that were in, uh, I, I, I profile some founders that went into a, a, an elderly care facility and lived there themselves for six months <laughs> to learn what the workflow was like in that elderly <laughs> care facility. And then, yeah, and then they talk came about the eating technology. your own dog food. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh. I mean, just amazing. And they ended up really improving the, the life, the, the quality of life for patients in those facilities. So like great technology, they had a great exit Um, You know, soup to nuts, just an amazing story that shows, you know, entrepreneurial grit and perseverance and discipline and hard work. There's a number of stories in the book like that where I'm just, I was very selective and I picked, uh, you know, I've got an immigrant story in there. Someone came to, you know, came into the country with nothing and grew it to a great exit. Um, There's a great story about uh, being sort of incrementally innovative, as I describe it, where you don't have to create the next Facebook or Amazon, you know, to to to, to be really successful, you can just incrementally innovate. And so I, I have a story in there about uh, a, a guy who's, you know, now got the, you know, the fastest growing restaurant point of sale uh, solution in America, um, you know, selling like crazy uh, gangbusters in New York city and, and, and San Francisco and I was so profiling his success as, as sort of saying, you know what, I'm just going to fix this problem just a little bit, but I'm going to fix it <laughs> in a way that's really reliable and, and, uh, as the idea that you don't have to be a rocket scientist, you know, to, uh, or have this great intellectual property in order to build a great high growth business. So typically high growth firms are profiled in there. entrepreneurial stories of high growth firms. And, um, and the backdrop of it is sort of my love for Canada and what well, things that make Canada a great place to start and build businesses. But I'm profiling entrepreneurs, of course, that have done business, doing business around the world that are, that are originally Canadian though. Um, it was sort of my starting point
0: love it. So it's called How yeah. We Can Win and What Happens to Us yeah. and Our Country If We Don't. Anthony Lacavera, yeah. thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me on. Cheers. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John warlow For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com/blog.